All right, we're, uh, we're in this sermon series titled Two Roads, and the idea in this Two Roads series is simply this. There's uh, an easier road that the runner took, and it's the, the wide road. And then there's a narrow road, which is more challenging, isn't it? And this is certainly true in the spiritual life, and the easy road the wide road that we've been talking about in the spiritual life can be any number of different things. But the narrow road is apprenticeship to Jesus Christ. Becoming more like Jesus, doing the things that he would do, saying the things that he would do. This kind of a step up and step out type series. It's called Two Roads Following the Hard Path of Jesus When the Way of Religion is so very easy in our culture. Isn't that the case, that there's a way of religion, there's a way of spirituality, of just kind of doing things that kind of work for me, and looking out for my interests, and going to church from time to time, a way of religion that is very, very easy and very wide across our culture today. Isn't that the case? Yes, I heard one person say. It is. And so what we've been doing is is talking about stepping up and stepping out as we seek to be apprentices of Jesus. I've been so encouraged in this series that I've heard from uh, many people who have been Christians for a long, long, long time, and others who are brand new Christians, just became Christians in the past months, and others still who are just here seeking, just asking questions, and they don't don't say they're Christians, they don't know what they are, They they don't know what they believe, but they're just asking questions. But but in each case, I've heard from people who are saying, yeah, I want something different than what I've had. Cultural religion by itself will not do. A friend of mine here in the church sent me this birthday card that he received for his birthday, and he thought it was apropos for our series. A few laughs, not many. I thought it was pretty funny. He's got his helmet and his tiny shopping cart, and he's taking the road less traveled, and that's making all the difference. That's what we're after. We are strapped up with our helmet. We're ready to go. We're willing to take the road less traveled, and that makes all of the difference. Today we're going to talk about two different roads with respect to how do we look at and how do we treat people who come from the other side of the tracks, people who are different than us in whatever way. How do we look at and how do we treat people who maybe struggle with different things than we do or come from a different context than we do? It seems to me that there are two very, very common ways in our culture that we answer that question. There's one very common way that I would describe as this. It's a road that says, I really couldn't say that any choice that any person makes is truly good or bad with a capital G or a capital B. I really couldn't say anything is actually good or evil. I could only say that different choices that different people make are their preferences. And I'm kind of a a live and let live kind of guy. You know that person? Just kind of live and let live and don't really speak anything of strength into anyone's life because all of us are just making different preferential choices in a morally relativistic world. You know that guy, right? Okay, and when you're around that guy, it's really kind of easy. You kind of get a chillax together. Oh, this is nice. We can kind of hang out and no one's going to say anything that would be challenging to each other. Now, we also know another guy who thinks that 
It's his responsibility to evaluate every choice that every other person makes. It's like it's a spiritual gift to be judgmental. It's a spiritual gift to say, no, you shouldn't be doing that, or yes, you should be doing this, and identify as often as he can with truth and with intensity and boldness in his eyes, this is what you must do and this is what you must not. You know that guy? My guess is you stay away from that guy, don't you? Okay? We all know each of these people. One who really, really majors on what we might call grace, just live and let live, Another one who really, really majors in what we would call truth. This is truth, and you must be conformed to what I believe starting right now. The fascinating thing to me about Jesus is as I began studying him a number of years ago, when I first got into the Gospels of Jesus, is he combines the very best of each of those without allowing the worst of either of those to stick to him. As you read the four short biographies of Jesus titled Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, these four little biographies of Jesus' life, you see that he is full of grace, and yet at the same time, amazingly, full of truth. There's a passage at the beginning of the Gospel of John that serves as an anchor for my ministry, and really always has. It's part of the prologue to John's gospel of Jesus, and he's explaining who Jesus was. And John, of course, saw the resurrected Christ after he spent three and a half years with Jesus. And this is how John describes Jesus for us, John 1, 14 and 18. It says, the Word became flesh. The Word is a word for Jesus. God, the Word, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Father, the only begotten of the Father, and he came full of grace and full of truth. No one else has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, has made him known to us. Full of grace, not Mr. Judgmental, and full of truth. Not Mr. Wishy-Washy. Not Mr. Wet Noodle of a Backbone. Not even 50-50. But overflowing with grace. And overflowing with truth. That's Jesus. Now, we all wonder from time to time, whether we're followers of Christ today or not, we all wonder from time to time, what is God like and what would God be like toward me? And this is the character of God to us. What verse 18 is saying there is Jesus reveals to us what God is like. If we want to know what God the Father is like, want to know what his character is like, want to know how he would view us, how he would operate with us, you look at Jesus. You look no further than Jesus. God looks like Jesus. That's why we constantly immerse ourselves in the Gospels, full of grace and full of truth. I see Jesus providing this third way between that focus mostly on truth and that focus mostly on grace. And somehow when we look at Jesus over and over again in the Gospels, well, we see someone who is holy and who is righteous and who is just and who is truthful. And yet at the same time, he is loving. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's gracious. And he's forgiving. 
We see this over and over again, but there's one portrait particularly that we want to look at uh, this morning, which is very revealing. It comes from John chapter 4. And uh, rather than read it, I'd like you to watch it from a movie that's titled The Gospel of John. And this is merely a word-for-word retelling of the Gospel of John in movie format. You can see Jesus here. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. You are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit, and only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he, I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. 
But none of them said to her, what do you want? Or asked him, why are you talking with her? By the way, that's a, it's a really good movie because it's just the Bible. <laughs> it's just the Gospel of John. If you have difficulty reading the Scriptures, that could be a great way to get the Scriptures in, just watching that movie. You, you watch the entirety of the Gospel of John that way. But did you notice there at the very end the disciples' response to the Samaritan woman? I, I want to suggest here, though, this morning... Three different responses to the Samaritan woman and three different responses that we might have to those who are not really my kind of people. What, what was the disciples' response to the Samaritan woman? It says they were shocked, they were surprised that he was talking to this woman. So the disciples are off getting lunch or something. They're off on a shopping excursion. They come back and they see Jesus still in rapt conversation with the Samaritan woman. And then the next word in the scripture is this. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with this woman? But did they think it? They totally thought it. In fact, some of the other translations get it even closer to the point. Other translations say the disciples returned and they were shocked that he was talking to this woman. They marveled that he was talking to this woman. They were surprised. They were astonished that he was talking to this woman. I love the way the message paraphrase of the Bible puts it, which is just a translation, again, from the Greek and Hebrew, but into modern-day English. It's a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, and he puts it this way as he's summarizing, well, what's happening. He says, just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. Why? Why is it that they were scandalized that he was talking to this woman? There's three different reasons. First, Jews of that day, conservative Jewish men of that day, didn't speak to any woman who wasn't their wife, period. And especially, a Jewish rabbi was never supposed to speak directly to any person that wasn't their wife. That's reason number one. The second reason is she has a reputation that has preceded her. And she's known as that kind of a woman. And there he is talking at a well with no one else around with that kind of a woman. So they're shocked. And finally, most significantly, they're in Samaria and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And if you remember in your Bible history, about 600 years before the time of Christ, there was this bloody war in which a group of people called the Assyrians came in and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and Israel was exiled out of Israel and into this place called Assyria. And then over time, many of them intermixed with the Assyrians and with the Babylonians and eventually the temple got rebuilt in Jerusalem and some of the Jews went back to Jerusalem but some of them stayed in what would now be Babylonia. And as they stayed in Babylonia, they oftentimes intermarried and the descendants of those people were Samaritans. And so Jews saw Samaritans as impure, mixed race, not my kind of people. And Jews and Samaritans, you cannot miss this as you read the scriptures, they were like this 
for hundreds of years. History has a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? That's one, that's one common response to someone like this Samaritan woman. Not my kind of people. Stay away from those kinds of people who sin that kind of way. Now, what would be a more modern response to this Samaritan woman? What would be a modern response in our culture? It seems that some would respond just the way the disciples did. They would say, that's, that's not my kind of people. I stay away far from those kinds of people. Some would respond that way. That's certainly found in our modern culture. But it seems more frequently to me, the modern expected response is to say, there is nothing that any one person can speak into anyone else's life. Because these things called commandments that we find throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and that Jesus spoke about all the time, they're now just suggestions. And a moral code has turned into preferences in our culture. And so the expected response in our culture today is live and let live. Never confront, never challenge anyone else's lifestyle in any way. Even if you developed a close relationship with them, you are expected not to confront because tolerance is the value du jour in our culture today, is it not? Don't just tolerate, embrace, and accept. The modern expected response in our culture is to say nothing even when you see that that person's decisions are ripping her life apart. That's the modern expected response. What was Jesus' response to this woman who was broken? I think Jesus, again, provides this beautiful third way, and it begins with this commentary here in verse 4. The Apostle John says, now he had to go through Samaria. John 4, 4. Well, what is that about? He had to go through Samaria. Really, Jesus did not have to go, to go through Samaria at all. Up on the screen here, yeah, you'll see a map of the ancient world. And Jesus' base of ministry is basically this red area. He was mostly in Cana and Capernaum. And regularly, he and his disciples, as other Jews would do, would go down to the temple in Jerusalem. And there were actually two roads in the Roman Empire by which people could go from Galilee to Jerusalem. There was one road that would weave its way through Samaria, and that was actually the closer route. And there was another road that would go through the Decapolis around here to get down to Jerusalem. And that was the further distance. But listen to me, Jews regularly would go the further distance through the Decapolis, then back around the Jordan River to Jerusalem, rather than going through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans that much. And Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria. You cannot miss this to understand this passage. He had to go through Samaria, not because he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because God sent him for people in Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because God wanted people on the other side of the tracks too. He had to go through Samaria because God wanted people in the inner city and in the rural countryside as well. He had to go through Samaria because he longed to reconcile these people who were like oil and water toward each other, to reconcile them to each other and to God. He had to go through Samaria for the same reason he had to come for you and me because he wants each and every one of us. He had to go through Samaria because he wants those who are able-bodied and disabled-bodied. He had to go through Samaria because he wants people of every tribe and language and tongue and race 
every nation. He wants them all. He loves them all. And so he has to go through Samaria. Is anyone with me here? Man, man. He had to go through Samaria to rescue an outcast named Adrian Boykin. And you need to hold on to that on a regular basis, that Jesus had to go through wherever. He chose to go through wherever to rescue you when you also were a Samaritan woman. It's not this kind of people and that kind of people. He comes through to rescue the human kind of people. It's such a profound episode on so many different levels. You look at verse 6, and the details in this passage, as you read it again and again, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and the time is noon, and she's by herself. You know, you'd be tempted to just kind of read through that, skip over it. Okay, why is she in the Middle Eastern desert at noontime? With the sun beating down on her forehead at the highest point in the sky, the hottest part of the day. Because she's an outcast. That's why she's there. Okay, the rest of the ladies would have already been to the well early in the morning, during the cool of the morning, gathering water for their families, bringing it back to their families at 7 a.m. She's there by herself at noon because even within her own village, she's an outcast. And God's own son meets her right there. He loves her right where she is. He sits down and he extends the hand of friendship to her. You heard it in that clip when he says to her, would you please give me a drink of water? Like you don't ask someone to coffee unless you want to get to know him. And that's him. This vulnerable statement, it says he's tired And so he asked this woman in the midst of his vulnerability and her vulnerability for a drink of water. And then the next most beautiful thing, he touches his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup. And only then, after this moment of correction, does the conversation about her broken family history begin. And friends, you cannot miss this. It's because he is so loving, because he's so gracious, because he's willing to meet with her in this vulnerable state It's because of that that he's able to speak into her life. If we don't start with grace, you cannot speak into someone else's life. Grace precedes truth. If people don't see that you care for them, they don't care how much you know, as we all know. It begins with grace, that you establish a relationship, you get vulnerable with someone, you meet them where they are, you extend the hand of fellowship to them, and then eventually perhaps there's an opportunity to speak into their lives. People will not listen to a word you say about almost any topic unless they perceive that you care about them. What happens is their wax fills with ears. (laughs) Their wax (laughs) Their wax fills with ears. Their ears fill with wax, the pastor said. Their ears fill with wax and they can't hear a thing that you say. Jesus didn't come just to make a point. That wasn't his goal. Jesus didn't come to prove that he was right. That wasn't his goal. Jesus came to make disciples. Sometimes we miss what he really invites us to do, not so much to make a point, but to make disciples, to invite people into the loving grace of God. And after he does that, after he connects with her, 
Then he goes into the hard path that many modern people won't ever do, and he begins to talk about her family situation and the challenge that her life has become. And he says, will you go tell your husband and bring him back, and I'll tell him about the life-giving water that I have to give as well. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And she says, yeah, you're right. He says, you don't have a husband, you've had five husbands. And now you're living with the sixth. Like, ouch, we're not supposed to say that, are we? We are not supposed to say that. But again, he's developed this connection with, with her already, and so he's able to speak into her life out of that connection because he sees that the standard at which she is living is actually ruining her life. And he loves her so much that he's willing to speak into that in that moment, and she is able to hear it because of the way he comes to her. Jesus is not willing to allow her past shame to define her future glory. He's not willing to allow her failures to define his forgiveness. He's willing to give forgiveness that overcomes all of her failures. He's willing to give hope that overcomes all of her shame. And so he says to her here in verses 13 and 14, Jesus answered to her, everyone who drinks the water that you are drinking. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Come to me and find life, he says. Just come to me and find life. I'll give you water that will always satisfy your parched soul. I'll give you water that will satisfy you for today and for eternity. Come to me and find life. This is what he says to outcasts. This is what he would say to each and every one of us today. Perhaps you came to church today for the very first time, and perhaps God brought you to church today for this reason alone, to learn that you are not too far from the long arm of the Lord, that he would give you living water as well, that wells up to eternal life and hope for today and eternity when we die. Three simple questions. How is it the disciples respond to this woman? How is it that our modern culture would respond to this woman? How is it that Jesus responded to this woman? And one very simple answer goes like this. Every person matters. That's it. That's it. Let's, let's, let's say this together. Every person matters. I, listen, if you are brand new here, this is our vision. It's this simple. I talk a lot about vision. I talk a lot about strategic plan. I like mission. I like words. This is how you boil it down. Every person matters. This is what we're about here. To any kind of different person who would grace our doors or who we would go to and our neighbors, we look at them through the eyes of the cross. Every person matters. And we all have to regularly decide in our hearts, is this person an outcast to avoid or a potential friend to embrace? We all have to decide in our hearts, is it that some people matter or is it that all people actually matter to God and therefore matter to me? And friends, this is absolutely critical for us in our culture today because these two other streams that I've just talked about have become so incredibly prevalent. There's a tribalism in our culture that reduces people to little camps and marginalizes them. And then you end up looking at those people from a distance and inevitably end up demonizing those people. Or there's this other stream where there is no truth with a capital T 
There is no morality with a capital M. And we cannot live that way. That will make all life unstable if you think there's no morality with a capital M. There has to be a standard, and there is no standard if there is no God. There's an objective standard, though, that comes from God. So we live out of that standard, and yet at the same time, we meet people right where they are. We don't idolize them. We don't demonize them. We do like Jesus does. We get up close, and we humanize them. I don't know if you remember, uh, a couple years ago, we had our partners from Circle Urban Ministries and the Rock of Our Salvation Church, our partner church up in Chicago, down with us here at this church for a long weekend, five or six days. And every year, we send a mission team up to this church in Chicago, and we meet with them and do a number of different projects for for inner city Chicago, there in the Austin neighborhood, and and just partnership well with this local church and this great ministry that's doing so much in in the inner city. But a couple years ago, these two pastors... James Borshade and Rob Stevens came down and joined us, and the three of us kind of co-taught a message here on Sunday morning out of John 4. Do you remember that? You all remember it perfectly, don't you? So I should just stop there and pray. (laughs) Okay, humor me. (laughs) I, I love this picture when I look at that picture. I just get smarter when I'm around those guys. Those guys help me so much to grow. And one of the things that we talked about as we were talking about John chapter 4 with James and Rob is the power of Jesus as this emulsifier. Emulsifier. An emulsifier is something that takes two things that are repelled to each other, like oil and water, that they come together and they just collide, and it binds them together. That's an emulsifier. It's like um, you take oil and water, and then you use egg, you whip it all together, and you have salad dressing. Delicious. Okay? Jesus is the great emulsifier. Jesus takes all of our diversity, and he brings about a unity amidst all of our diversity, that we realize that we can coexist, we can actually love each other and learn from each other in spite of all of our differences. Jesus is the ultimate emulsifier. And I am here to tell you that this vision statement that we have is also an emulsifier. If you begin to see every person that you look at with cross-centered vision, with the eyes of the cross, that this person matters so much to God, that Jesus died for that person, and so that has great implications for how I relate to that person, that becomes this extraordinary emulsifier to bring people close to one another and even bring people to God such that we can have more effect for the kingdom and our little postage stamp of creation. That's actually possible, and I've heard from so many people in this church who are now living into this statement, every person matters, and it's just changed the way they see their neighborhood. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's exactly what happened, well, with the Samaritan woman. She encounters Jesus. She realizes that God loves even her. He sees her as she is. She realizes that God sees her as she is. She's not an ethical relativist. She realized she has sin in her life, that God has a sexual standard, and she has fallen beneath it, just as we all have in a hundred different ways, and yet God still came and met her there. And because she sees this, she realized that God came to save even me, and I am fully known, and I am fully loved, and I matter to God too. And as a result of that, she's overflowing with joy when she goes back to her village. And here's the postscript of the story as she goes back to her village and tells her village what has happened to her. 
Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. I mean, you could imagine. Here's a Jewish teacher telling me that as a Samaritan, that God has come to bring living water welling up to eternal life, even for me, even for us. So we would be included in the plan of God too. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed in Samaria rather than continue his journey down to Jerusalem. He stayed with them in Samaria, in the inner city, on the other side of the tracks, for the next two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. That's what Jesus does. He's the emulsifier that reconciles diverse people to each other and reconciles diverse people to God. The wide road today is putting people into tribes. These people are my people. These people are not my people. The narrow road is seeing people through cross-centered vision and saying, God came for every person that I look at today. Love the way the Apostle John put it. As he wrote over in 1 John, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen actually cannot love God whom they have not seen. Mm. Mm -mm. Let's say that again. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. This is the high road of holiness. We tend not to think of this as the high road of holiness, but it is. Every bit as much as fighting for your marriage is the high road of holiness. Every bit as much as fighting against greed, fighting against lust, fighting against pride. The way we treat others, the way we see someone as an outcast to avoid or a friend to embrace, is the high road of holiness. How do we do this? I gotta tell you, I see it in this church every day. You're doing it all the time. The response of people to those that they don't know in Gibbon and Wood River and Acadia and elsewhere after the floods has been awesome. You're doing this all the time. I see it down in Loving Hands Ministry on Sunday morning when volunteers come around, kids, who have developmental disabilities so that families can be in here worshiping together and kids can have a safe place with a one-on-one volunteer showing every person matters. I see it in here when people who don't have teenage kids anymore choose to give to the vision of refabbing that youth room so we can have a better teaching space for our middle school and our high school students, even though it's not going to personally affect their family. They're saying, those kids matter to me. We see it in here all the time when folks get outside of their demographic and go and meet someone that they haven't met yet that looks a little bit different than them here in this church and they want to be sure that a large church doesn't feel too large but it begins to feel a little bit smaller because every person matters. We see it in here time and time again on Monday night when people come down and they go to the blended care ministries or to the divorce care ministry, or recovery ministry, or grief share, and we say, I am my brother's keeper. I am not gonna leave that person on an island by themselves. I will walk 
with them through this heartache because they matter to God and they matter to me. And we see it every time that we find someone in the neighborhood who for whatever reason is kind of left out, never gets invited over to someone's house for cookies. For whatever reason, life hasn't fallen her way, hasn't fallen his way. And you all go to that person. You say you want to come on over. And we might just find a friend to embrace rather than an outcast to avoid. God be praised. Give us cross-centered vision to live into this. Every person matters. Pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are so merciful to us in Christ that really when we boil it all down, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about ourselves, that we are the Samaritan woman. And you came to us when we were left out and we didn't have a connection with God. And maybe we were left out and shamed by others around us. You still came to us. And we receive your love. Maybe there's people here in this room today that are so overcome by shame, so overcome by guilt that they couldn't believe that God would come to them. And I pray that you would meditate on the beauty of God's own son coming to a woman who had been married and divorced five times and now living with a sixth who had been shamed by her community and yet she learned that God came for her too. And God comes for you as well. Father, would you make us emulsifiers? Would you enable us to be the third way kind of people? that make a difference wherever we go, that look for the best when it's so easy to look for the worst. Would you help us to be the kind of people that lead on the high and very narrow road of Christ who was full of grace and full of truth in whose name we pray.